You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Beaulieu. Defining a brand's purpose and acting on it successfully isn't easy, but done right, it can transform a business from boosting innovation and employee engagement to driving brand loyalty and growth. Purpose also can help crystallize and advance sustainability strategy and ESG programs while giving a business the license to engage on social issues. In the new book, Purposeful Brands, How Purpose and Sustainability Drive Brand Value and Positive Change, author Sandy Skies maintains that purpose is a vision for protecting, nurturing, or restoring the commons. In fact, as she writes, when you think about the sheer scale of all the dimensions of a corporation, how they can be deployed toward preserving the planet and society alongside delivering business value, then you clearly understand purpose. But how do you reach that level of deep understanding? How do you avoid the common misperceptions about purpose? For answers to these questions and more, I am joined by Sandy Skies. In addition to being an author, speaker, and strategic advisor, Sandy is the EVP of Purpose and Impact Global Lead at Porter Novelli, a global purpose communications consultancy. Sandy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ken. It's good to be here. So, Sandy, I would argue that you have written the definitive book on purpose. It is so informative. It is so enlightening. Kudos to you. How long did it take you to pull together this book? I wrote it in about six, seven months, but I lived it for the last over 15 years. It's based (laughs) on 15 years of sustainability and purpose work exclusively, and about another 15 years before that in communications, brand strategy, marketing. So it's the culmination of a few decades of professional work. So I think it's almost comical, Sandy, that there are still cynics out there who claim Mm -hmm. that purpose is a fad. So what is your argument against that perception? And how has purpose evolved in your mind? Two things have happened, right? I think one, we've codified an old notion that a business had to be a responsible corporate citizen. That's been around for as long as we've had businesses, and most of them family-owned, community-based, etc. There was always a sense, hey, we have a responsibility to the communities where we do business. It has had a myriad of names, but in the, since about the 2018 time period when Larry Fink at BlackRock declared in a famous letter that companies needed to exist for a a purpose beyond profit and that they would only be investing in companies who understood that and were were paying attention and operationalizing that. So all of a sudden, purpose got the attention as a vernacular term for being a good corporate citizen and understanding that no matter what Milton Freeman had to say, the purpose of a corporation does live outside delivering profits to shareholders. Again, these are old wisdom, old old truths we understood before, but purpose has become in this era a shorthand for a company understanding that it has stakeholders beyond shareholders. Those stakeholders involve customers and suppliers and 
community regulators and, and national and global regulators and all the other populations of people that you depend on to run your business successfully. So that's sort of the first thing is that it's just a new phrase for an old term, if you will. But I think with a deeper understanding of, well, how do we actually operationalize that into the company? So that's new. I would say the second thing that's happened is the massive generational shift we see in Gen Z and Gen Alpha below them in terms of their expectation of the company they work for, the company they buy from, and increasingly the companies they invest in uh, better have a clearly stated uh, way of describing how they at least are not going to harm the environment, maybe help it, and how they're going to take some responsibility for inequities in society. This younger cohort, as, as anyone in marketing knows, is very different. And the pressures they're placing on companies, on brands, is new. So as you write in your book, Sandy, purpose, sustainability, and ESG are very different terms but they're often seen as interchangeable. So I'm giving you the platform right now to Yay. set the record straight. <laughs> I appreciate it, Ken. In fact, actually, that's why I wrote the book. I feel like we're getting, uh, we're wasting time arguing terms. And so I, my hope is by putting forth really clear definitions, methodologies, uh, ways in which companies can find and live their purpose, that we can move faster and solve the critical urgency of now. Okay, so purpose, as you uh, read from an expert excerpt from my book, is the, the using of the entire company. It is always a business strategy that leverages the entire breadth of the company's resources in service to some greater good as a business strategy. The idea is the why. You know, for those of us in branding, it's the why. And I posit that the why has to be able to articulate some piece of the commons. That is all those things that we depend on, but nobody owns. Clean air, clean water, a functioning a civil society, et cetera. What part of that, you don't have to take, care, take responsibility for all of it, just the one that is most congruent and synergistically aligned to your business and your product and your service line, and state what piece of it you're going to own and how you're going to contribute to it. That's your purpose. Sustainability is a fairly new profession, been around a couple of decades as a distinct profession. You know, a decade ago, we didn't have chief sustainability officers. We barely had sustainable ma sustainability managers inside companies. But what we've seen is that sustainability is an understanding of the environmental performance and the social performance of a company alongside the growth and revenue it's generating. So the idea is that when you're making decisions about growth and innovation, you want to take into account the inputs required environmentally and the impacts you'll have environmentally, and then the inputs you'll need societally and the impacts you'll have on society. It's simply saying we've now added two filters to a decision set that used to be mostly around innovation, growth, profitability, quality, those are business imperatives we all understand. What we now see is that sustainability is the business strategy where you operationalize your management of your environmental and social dimensionality alongside your revenue and growth dimensionality. That's sustainability. So that's strategic. ESG, which stands for Environment Social Governance, is a term that sort of I've exploded and is now beginning to wane in its use. 
the reason it exploded is because Wall Street started paying attention to companies who had a sustainability strategy. And they said, uh, uh, the first myth is that any company that gives money into or spends any amount of energy, capital, or interest in environmental or social dimensions is cheating its shareholders, and you're not going to deliver good profits. 15 years of watching company performance, S&P 500 was the first to really begin quantifying. No, actually, if you look at companies who report on their environmental and social dimensionality, they're actually outperforming the S&P by a few percentage points. Okay, so what happens when Wall Street discovers a predictive element of a, of a company that can allow you to forecast better returns. They want an algorithm for it. They want to understand it. They want you to talk about it. They want you to report on it. They want to hack it so that they can create portfolios of companies that are outperforming. And so ESG became the phrase a lot of companies used in order to satisfy the curiosity of investors. The thing about it is at first, it, it's all unregulated. I have clients who are publicly traded companies who say to me, or I'm sorry, privately held companies who say, well, we're not, you know, we're not a public company, so we don't need to report on our sustainability strategy. And I said, you realize that all of the climate and carbon emissions that companies have been reporting for more than a decade has always been voluntary. We're starting to see regulation come, certainly in the in Europe. Now the SEC uh, regulations are coming. But the thing to remember is when a company describes its climate and its or its environmental and social performance, it's doing so in sort of a wild west of anything goes in terms of reporting, which makes it difficult. And I think that's why you saw a lot of pushback because there is no standard. An analogy I like to use is the generally accepted accounting principles that we all understand very well that govern how a company reports its financial dimensionality They've been around for uh, 150 years. How we report on environmental performance and social performances and the requirements for it have really only been around for maybe 10, maybe 15 years. So it's got a lot of maturing to do. So as you're aware, and we've talked about this, there is an anti-ESG movement afoot. So what triggered that movement and why should leaders resist it, if at all? Well, I think there's two dynamics that tend also to get conflated. There's the anti-ESG and then there's the anti-woke. Those are different. The anti-ESG pushback came primarily from the fossil fuel, oil, and gas sector that was looking for a way to not be delisted or uh, not included in certain portfolios of investment. As there's a growing, I mean, we're watching the, we're watching it happen right now. Um, I was in a meeting with a colleague who works at a um, major oil and gas firm, and he used the term, look, we're an industry that is in the process of sunsetting. And I was staggered by that admission and asked if that was a well-held uh, belief inside his company. And he said, well, not exactly, but I, I think we all are watching this happen as we move out of a fossil fuel economy. And I think the anti-ESG was a way of saying, look, from an environmental perspective, primarily, um, we we need a transition period and, and we can't be anti-fossil fuel companies in our portfolios, et cetera. So that, that's where all that rhetoric came from, is, is I think, from an mostly from an environmental perspective. 
the anti-woke agenda is different and it's it's grounded in social progress. It's grounded in a a group of sort of far-right activists who have become very adept at hijacking, if you will, social stands that companies might take or commitments companies might make to societal cohesion and the, and equity uh, programs that they've decided are their contribution to the commons. And they're saying, that's not your business. Brands need to sit down and be quiet. This is societal stuff and you don't belong there. And there's a very loud and cacophonous argument happening in um, the public square right now. But the thing to remember, again, is that generational cohort that has expectations of brands. And that cohort is bigger than a cohort of very loud, active, anti-woke activists. Um, your future customers, your future employees, your current employees are expecting you as the brand to take, to show up around certain social issues that matter to them. And, and they're watching. Difficult to balance that, huh? Though I would Terribly so. I, I, and I'm, I'm not in any way trivializing the needle that has to get thread th these days because it's tough. In your great book, Sandy, you write, quote, when we expect organizations to do all things sustainability, we risk scattering their attention in diluting progress on their purpose let alone business performance. So I'm hoping you can elaborate a bit on that insight. Let me start by saying there are certain sustainability programs that companies are, are just table stakes now. They are foundational and baseline. Companies are going to be expected and required regulatorily to report on their carbon emissions. That That is here and it's coming and there's even more Scrutiny that'll, uh, for those of you who know the inside baseball of scope one, two, and three, you will be required to report on the carbon emissions in your supply chain and all of your scope three. That's coming. So there are certain sustainability initiatives that are just part of running a smart business that are here to stay. And that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Within all of the things that a company could do, there's a handful of things that it should innovate around and excel at as it ladders up to purpose. So if your purpose, if you decide that providing clean water or ensuring clean water is, is part of your purpose, then what you're going to do is, is double down on that and really innovate on it. Trying to be great at everything is a scatter, that scattered use of capital and resources innovation. But if you focus on the thing that is most core to your business, that is most core to your brand promise and innovate there, get the table stakes stuff right, but really innovate in the one area that gives you the greatest return from a brand value perspective, from a customer loyalty perspective, from actually an innovation and leadership perspective, and one where you can bring others along with you because you're putting more skin in the game. Hello, Beyond Profit listener. Is it possible to transform purpose into profit? You bet. And it starts by downloading the complimentary BPP framework offered through the Center for Brand Purpose in partnership with Grounded World. Comprising belief, purpose, and pursuits, the framework provides all key stakeholders within your organization with a blueprint to drive innovation, culture, and communication. And if used correctly, it will unite the why of your purpose with the way of profit to drive growth and social impact. To learn more, visit ana.net slash purpose framework. And now, back to the show. 
I'm speaking today with Sandy Skies, author of Purposeful Brands. So let's talk about this idea of purpose being a catalyst for driving innovation and creating business opportunities. But first, it must be operationalized. It's a point that you make in your book uh, mm -hmm. consistently. Can you just talk a bit about that? One of the things that I've been working on since I wrote the book is how do I quantify purpose's contribution to business value? And working with a few ex-McKinsey analysts, we're working on a hypothesis that says when you have a mature, purposeful brand, and there's some different characteristics of maturity uh, for purpose, you should be able to prove greater revenue brand and, and valuation. You should be able to demonstrate and prove using external readings, rankings, and indices, looking at stock performance, looking at revenue performance, looking at innovation awards, looking at employee engagement scores. We should be able to correlate strong uh, operationalized purpose with external wins, if you will. And when I talk about externalizing, I mean, operationalizing purpose, there's there are these four, we call them sort of five elements. The first is, have you articulated it? And, and I spend a lot of time in the book helping companies think about how do you go back to your founder story? How do you go back to the brand promise and, and zero in on your purpose, the why, the part of the commons you're going to take responsibility for? That's articulation. So then the second is adoption. And that is you, you're, you've spread it through your organization, mostly employees, but probably close partners too. And do they buy it? Do they, they say, yep, I think that makes sense for the brand. That's sort of part two. Um, the third is uh, embed. And that's where you begin building in planning structure. You know, I've worked with a, a large CPG company that now uses their annual business planning process where they're forecasting capital investment, uh, revenue targets, profit targets, volume targets. They're also, they've included an environmental dimensionality in there that's just part of, they're using their, their normal business planning cycles, software processes for, for enabling sustainability planning. So that's an idea. That's an example of how you operationalize it in the company. The, the fourth sort of attribute is, are you incentivizing? Are executives held accountable for it? Are certain brand portfolios or product portfolios who are delivering on it able to get more capital, more resources? How are you incentivizing the company? And then the last dimension, which few companies do, but we call that the invitation or the invite element. And that's where you recognize whatever it is you're trying to solve for, either restore in the environment or strengthen in society, you realize you're not going to go it alone. And then you've understood that in order to actually achieve it, while it may give you certain uh, advantages to the business, it's not a competitive advantage per se. And you need everybody to come with you because most of the time, when we're trying to do these massive changes, their systems changes, and they require everyone in the ecosystem to come along with you. Great example is when we want to get certain items made with recyclable, or we want to get plastic out of the oceans and the waterways, et cetera. Well, we need consumers to recycle it. We need other companies to take it and use it and figure out how to fabricate it in new products. But mostly we need a hundred disjointed municipal recycling facilities to agree to take it and recycle it and get it back in the commodity stream. 
that those are systems changes and you need coalitions of the willing to push it along. And that's that last stage where you take responsibility and say, you know what, we're going to get everybody in working on this right now. So an important part of the coalition of the willing uh-huh. are nonprofit partners. Can you just talk about the importance of, of working with these folks in terms yeah. of adding credibility to your purpose efforts? Absolutely. Well, they add credibility for sure because they're and I've had many big NGOs and foundations and nonprofits as clients. In fact, you know, my first ex- experience working with a lot of them is I'm used to business KPIs. What's our revenue target? How many units do we need to sell? What's profit margin? And you get and you start working with nonprofits and foundations and big think tanks, and they have a theory of change, which is a completely different way of seeing the world. But when you bring these two things together, what you are now enabling is two pieces of the ecosystem solving the problems together. I mean, frankly, I'm in New York this week for Climate Week, and the UN and the Sustainable Development Goals are a great example of a big nonprofit that set 17 very clear goals that they're asking governments to put their shoulder to the oar around, but also businesses. So now all of a sudden we can all talk about similar goals, similar means to achieving the goals, like gender equality. It's understood in the SDGs that that requires education for women and girls. Well, there's plenty of companies that are working on that problem alongside nonprofits who may be sort of in the last mile in the homes and schools of the girls, but the corporations are supporting it. So those public-private partnerships are, are critical. I think that's going to, that we're going to see more and more of that, not just on the social side, but now on the environmental side, as we look at the big problem of pulling carbon out of the air has to be done in carbon reduction, but also carbon capture and funding the science and exploration of it is more of a philanthropic effort, but the operationalizing and commercializing it will be a corporate, a brand, a company exercise. So you can see how those two things work together. Right. Good point. So you believe that established and successful business systems may be preventing companies from maintaining their social license to operate. Why is that? I think some companies have policies or cultural sacred cows that say we don't weigh in on social issues. That That's for uh, nonprofits and that's out there in the public sector and that's not where we weigh in. And so their policies may prevent them from participating in things around equity, even pay equity, uh, helping some marginalized communities have access to opportunities, et cetera. So I think those kinds of things can get in the way of progress if it's, well, that's not how we're used to doing it. So I think those are some systems I do think that the sort of quarterly earnings, Wall Street expectations, short-term thinking also can prevent companies from making large capital improvements that help drive environmental or social programs. And I was just on a call with a, a client the other day, and you know we're trying to figure out how do you make the case internally to a wide range of brand brand holders whose responsibility is to drive a brand into the market, you know, understand what the innovation needs to be, the packaging, the marketing, all of it. And 
within that community, you know, it's understood, well, a new flavor, that's the way, that's what we need capital investment for next year is like on our roadmap, we've got, we've got to introduce this flavor or this new uh, skew. And what I think we want to do is begin to introduce that sometimes the innovation can be reduced packaging because your customers are looking for that too. And so it's, those are the sort of institutionalized ways that we look at market and market opportunity and innovation if we don't have the language for saying yeah but if we can help consumers have a different behavior and we can innovate on it and deliver them the product that they're used to consuming for example in just a different model a great example is a lot of the cpg companies that are thinking about refillable packaging right now that means they've got to change manufacturing lines and frankly, retail partnerships and consumer behavior. And so you can imagine that if, if we have a business planning process that just says add, add three to 4% to the budget year on year on year and sort of keep rolling the same types of innovation, that calcification doesn't allow for innovation around social or environmental aspects, which I think we need to do. So you also write in your book that a narrative framework and communications platform are necessary to inspire and inform a purpose strategy. So I'm hoping you can elaborate on that as well. Purpose is a, it's a promise. It's also a feeling. It's also a, an emotional connection that all of your stakeholders are going to have with you as a brand or a company. And communications is, is an integral part of explaining that in a way that people feel a sense of partnership with you and understand what their role is in helping you achieve your purpose. Because you're going to need your customers to behave differently, your suppliers to behave differently. Um, you're going to need uh, your employees to behave differently. I think one of the greatest challenges for purpose, sustainability, we'll call it whatever you will, today is getting employees al- mission aligned. And, you know, we've all seen this before, for those of us who've been around as long as I have, that we remember the quality innovation, the Six Sigma, like pushing that down into organizations was massive. We're looking at that same sort of massive culture change because we're asking every employee to to stop and think about what are the environmental or social dimensions of the decision you're making. Who Who's making this? How, how are they making it? What what are they using to make it with? What happens to it after it's done? Who are we leaving out? Maybe which communities of potential customers have we not included when we think about where this product is going to be available? Those are all environmental and social dimensions that we're going to ask companies to be looking at. So I think communications becomes the mechanism with which companies can bring along all of the stakeholders they need in order to meet their objectives. So let's build on that a bit. Again, in your book, you acknowledge that leaders have blind spots Mm -hmm. and that they must consider the viewpoints of all employees. Another difficult challenge again, but just talk about the importance of that. Yeah, I think that understanding the lived experience of a wide range of people is becoming a skill set that leaders must have. There is an, a growing sense that in many ways we are all a lot the same and in other ways that matter, 
the way that we move through the world, how we, what our families are like, where we live, what our neuro processing capabilities are, what our uh, physical abilities or disabilities are, all those things are, are different. And I think it's um, the empathy uh, factor, because that's really what we're talking about. It's the ability to say, I live my life the way I live my life, but not everyone, not everyone lives life the way I do. And I accept and respect that there is a multitude of ways to live life. When leaders understand that, their employees feel it, their engagement is greater, their retention is longer, um, and they stay with you. But your customers feel it too. I think that's important. I want a great example of a company that I think does this well is Delta and their Faces of Travel program. They've been very deliberate and thoughtful in putting different expressions of how people live lives in their marketing and advertising. And in you know a few conversations I've had with people of different experiences, they've noticed it. They've they've begun paying attention, and it matters, and it is creating greater loyalty for them. So I think if you're a leader and you want your employees to believe that they, that you see them and you want your customers to believe that you see them, uh, that kind of ability to, to an empathy to be able to understand the lived experiences of a lot of different people is an important empathy asset that, that leaders must have. Does it also extend, Sandy, to understanding the personal purposes of employees? Perhaps it, it certainly requires a curiosity about it and a desire to create alignment between a, a personal purpose and a company purpose and an understanding that the workers that you have, the people who you're, you're employing are not there just because they're grateful they have a job and they're collecting a paycheck, which certainly is true, but there's a lot of other reasons. And that's why a company's stated purpose is always so important in creating recruitment and retention um, numbers, because if I can see my own personal purpose or the thing that I care about expressed and lived out in the company I work for, it creates more loyalty and less friction in, in the workplace. Well said. Lastly, Sandy, at the end of your book, there are several quotes from purpose experts mm -hmm. who talk about where purpose is going. So mm -hmm. in your humble opinion, what will purpose look like five, 10 years down the road? Any company that doesn't figure out its responsibility to the greater good won't be around in 10 years. That's my bold prediction. I think companies who exist merely to create wealth for the founders or wealth for the investors aren't going to last in a world that needs all of us solving for re reduced carbon emissions the ability to carefully manage the resources of the planet, the need to inspire cohesion instead of divisiveness amongst groups of humans. Like this is where the world is in, in, a, in a moment in history. And corporations have such a powerful place in that solution set for leaders with the humility and courage to understand that. So I think we may not be calling it purpose, but I believe that we'll be teaching, we are teaching purpose in business schools right now. We are teaching sustainability strategy as part of MBA programs now. We're teaching ethical business in ways we haven't before. And I think we will see that the role of corporations will be good 
going forward for those that last. Then I would strongly recommend listeners to uh, to purchase a copy of your book. Sandy, I appreciate Ski- that. <laughs> Sandy Skies, thank you so much for joining me on Beyond Profit. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Great seeing you, Ken. To learn more about Sandy's great work and to order a copy of Purposeful Brands, please visit sandyskies.com. That's sandyskies, S-K-E-E-S dot com. And if you'd like to recommend a speaker or a topic for this podcast, please email me at brandpurpose at ana.net. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.